Good morning. Would you open a Bible to Psalm 51? It's on page 474. We're going to go through the entire psalm, and there's a lot of background information about it because it was written by David. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would now um, work supernaturally in our hearts. That we might experience the forgiveness that David experienced by taking the path that he took. Give us courage. Uh, but take, a, take us to where we are truly forgiven and restored to fellowship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look at the very beginning of the psalm there. And what does it say before the psalm even starts? It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so you need to know that story to be able to kind of place this psalm um, and understand just how bad David was. David had seven older brothers. This meant he would not inherit much and he'd kind of always be in their shadow. But he's a brave and skilled Shepherd. He's got his, his staff. He's got his sling. And he's actually so good that he's killed a bear and a lion as a teenager. Now, he doesn't tell us how big the lion was. The king of Israel at that point is King Saul. And Saul disobeys God. And Samuel, who's been the prophet that anointed Saul and been very important in Israel's history at this point, Samuel the prophet tells him that God has rejected him. And he says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Remember that phrase, a man after his own heart. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And Samuel is told to go to the house of a man named Jesse. Kind of, you know, not super poor, not super rich, but Jesse. He's got... Eight sons. And seven of the sons file past Samuel the prophet. And he's, you know, waiting to see which one God is going to say he's supposed to anoint as the king after Saul. And Eliab is like kingly. Okay? Big dude. The, the first king, Saul, he was head and shoulders above most people. Big tall guy. And so Samuel sees this guy and goes, surely that's the guy. And God says to him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What does God care about? The heart. Now, in the ancient world, how important your family was, uh, and being the firstborn male, generally determined your level of success in life. But God shows his power, and that what he cares about is your heart, by taking a shepherd, the eighth son in a mid-level family, and making him king. God cares about the heart, not your social status. That's all going to pass away. And, and this, we see this throughout Scripture. A number of the women are studying Gideon right now, who's the least of the least tribe. Uh, we see that with Peter and, other, and many of the disciples who were just common fishermen, not who anybody would have picked as their, um, to, to follow a rabbi. And, and Jesus himself, born into a poor carpenter's house. It's, it's not about social status. It's about your heart. So Samuel anoints David to become the next king. And it take, but it takes many years. This is, this is not overnight. David 
sings for the king. He becomes known a little bit in the court. He, he kills Goliath, which is pretty exciting. But he also then gets more and more success. And Saul, <coughs> excuse me, Saul becomes jealous. And he starts trying to kill him. So he's chased around the countryside for years by Saul. Saul finally dies. And after a long civil war, then David becomes king. And he is super successful. He's really good administratively. He conquers the, the Philistines and the Ammonites and all the different people around them and expands Israel. And he has a bunch of wives. But that's not enough for him. One night he's out walking on his veranda and he looks over on a roof and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. And he lusts after her. And that's that's really, that's where he is defeated, right there. That's where he loses the battle. He allows himself to imagine sleeping with her. You know, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does God care about? Your heart. Most people, forget about lust for a moment. Most people have a sin that they especially struggle with. You probably have something that you struggle with that you know God does not want you to think or do or say. We have a term we call the sin that we especially struggle with our besetting sin. It besets us. It's, it's kind of right, right there hanging on. Uh, for many people, it's gluttony. For some, it's, it's bad-mouthing because they have a proud and judgmental heart. For some, it's, it's greed or materialism, and they spend way too much on, on their family. They don't really trust God to provide. For others, it's, it's irritability and anger. For some, it's, it's bitterness, refusing to treat others with the same grace and forgiveness that they've received from God. Now, for many men, the sin they struggle with, their besetting sin, is lust. And they, they imagine sex with women they're not married to. I'm told that about 70% of American men are regularly involved with pornography. Most of it online today. They're lusting after women. I'm also told that a significant percentage of women access pornography and struggle with lust, although often, from what I'm told, sometimes it's you know, reading those lusty romance novels that, where they can imagine being romanced and desired and seduced by someone with whom no man they know can ever compare. The men do the same thing with the pornography. It's not realistic. And our culture now considers sex to be basically just recreation, kind of like going out to eat or going to a sporting event or uh, listening to a concert, watching a, watching a movie. It's just that sex is, is more fun, but it's, it's, it's considered now a need, sort of like food. You have to have food. You have to have sex. And you don't need to be married. Our culture believes that sex outside of marriage does not hurt anyone. For thousands of years, God has been telling us exactly the opposite. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? He uses the word prostitute because there were temple prostitutes. That's sometimes who men would have sex with. But it doesn't have to be a prostitute because you become one. All right? It can be anybody uh, that you're not married to. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
through whether or not the person's a prostitute. It is one of the easiest and today one of the most common ways that you can damage your own soul, soul and damage the soul of someone else just by having sex outside of marriage. Now, our culture accepts and even encourages a whole range of sins that damage souls. All sin damages souls. When they say, that's one of the big fallacies about saying, well, it's okay to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. You're always hurting somebody. Even if you're just thinking it, it hurts people. It makes you less like Jesus than you could have been. But in our culture, very acceptable to badmouth. I mean, that's what all we see on the news channels. Greed. Disrespect. Very, very acceptable. Very encouraged. But sexual immorality is especially damaging to the soul. So David's problem starts when he allows himself to entertain lust about this beautiful woman that is taking a bath on a roof nearby. And although he, fi- he finds that he checks into who she is and he, fi- and he knows that she's married, but he sends for her. She seems to come willingly. Remember, there's something fishy about a beautiful woman taking a bath on top of a roof where the king will see her. Um, just saying, there's more to that story that we don't get to know. Um, so she comes, they sleep together, and some weeks later she sends him word that she's pregnant. Now, her husband, Uriah, has been off fighting David's battles for him. He's off with the army. So David has him summoned home and kind of tries to get him to go home and sleep with his wife so that he'll think it's his baby. But he's too honorable. He doesn't want to do that while his men are out in the field. And so David sends him a sealed note back to his commander. Unknowingly, Uriah takes orders back to his commander that they are to put Uriah in the very front of the battle and then everybody else is to withdraw so that the enemy will kill him. And that's what happens. It's murder by proxy. David waits a little while, brings Bathsheba into his household and marries her. And she bears a son and they're thinking, dodge that bullet, we got away with it. Now, you're here this morning, so probably you already know what I'm going to say is true. You do realize that God knows everything. He realizes, He always knows, whether it's lust or bad-mouthing or jealousy or greed or anger, just not keeping your word and doing what you said you would do. God always knows, and He takes sin very seriously. Lust is so bad that Jesus says it's better you pluck out your eye than that you be allowing lust into your life. Sin is so bad that Jesus suffered more than we can even fathom to pay for it. God takes your sin very seriously. Now, many months after the adultery, the prophet Nathan comes to speak with David, and he tells him a story. He says, oh, there's this, there's this rich man who had lots of sheep, and um, just very rich, and there was nearby this poor man only had one little lamb that he loved dearly, and a guest comes, and the rich man grabs the, the poor man's lamb, slaughters it, and feeds it to the guest. And David is just incensed. He says, that guy deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. He talks about all that God's done for him and how he took Uriah's wife when he had a bunch of wives, had Uriah killed. David repents. And he writes Psalm 51. And he is forgiven by God. However, there are still consequences for his sin. The baby dies, and later his favorite son, Absalom, will start a rebellion and a civil war against him. Would you look now at Psalm 51? We'll start with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now notice King David's focus. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, did he sin against Uriah when he had him murdered? Did he sin against Bathsheba when he committed adultery with her? Did he sin against the baby who died or the thousands who will die in the Civil War because he has disobeyed? Yeah, he sinned against all of them. He even sinned against himself. It damaged his own soul soul by what he did. And he's going to lose Absalom, his favorite son, is going to die after betraying him and causing a civil war. It's... But his focus is on how he has treated God against you, you only, have I sinned. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See, he knows that God is merciful and forgives. God had set up this whole sacrificial system where depending on the sin and depending on how much money you had, and things like that, you would sacrifice a bird or a lamb or a bull or various things like that. And God said, there is forgiveness, but there is a price. Jesus, all of these sacrifices were meant to, the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament, were meant to point to and prepare humanity for God himself coming to earth and becoming the sacrifice that pays for our sins. They were all just a, a shadow of what was coming, the true sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, becomes the true Lamb who voluntarily sacrifices himself to take away the sin of the world. But because of what God has already done, David knows that forgiveness is available. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David understands that he needs to have his heart cleansed and renewed. He does not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We talked about that several weeks ago. He doesn't want to miss out on God's company. He wants to be restored to joy, the joy of God's forgiveness and salvation. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Once he's been forgiven, he promises to tell people about God and to praise God. And we do that every Sunday here. We praise God. We've just been singing, and hopefully you've been having thoughts of gratitude toward God. Hopefully throughout your day you praise God for who he is, and you thank him for what he's done. And hopefully, just like David, you are actively telling others. Not in some preachy way, but just kind of sharing a bit here and there of what Jesus has done for you, how he's changed you, or the joy that you have, or the peace of being forgiven. One of the habits I'm trying to get into my life as we work on what we call organic outreach here 
is that I want to pray every morning when I get up that God will put before me somebody I can help and maybe share a little bit about what Jesus is doing in my life. So to help me, I've put that on my, my phone now so that every single morning on my calendar will pop up to pray for that. I want to develop that habit. I hope you will too. And if, if that's uncomfortable for you, you can just start by helping people. But we want to train all of our church eventually to be very comfortable just kind of saying, oh, that, yeah, I'm just feeling so great today because of, you know, I just feel so forgiven. Or, oh, yeah, I used to be really like this, but uh, that's just one of the things Jesus has been working on in my life. Lots of different ways that you can just, depending on the person, the situation, minister to them. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David realized that first and foremost, God cares about what? The heart. A contrite heart. Not merely some external sacrifice. He's king. He can sacrifice hundreds of bulls and rams and sheep and pigeons and all kinds of stuff. And it might not mean anything. God God wants a contrite heart in him, and David knows that. What is a contrite heart? Can you be forgiven if you just give a lot of money? Or, or just show up to church regularly? Do you have to have a contrite heart? Actually, you do. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Getting right with God includes both repentance and belief. A contrite heart is what leads us to repentance. We can't experience repentance without a contrite heart. We don't truly repent. There's a wonderful passage in the New Testament in which the Apostle Paul summarizes this. We'll put it on screen. He says, For godly grief produces excuse me, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's godly grief. That's the broken and contrite heart that David is referring to in Psalm 51. And there is worldly grief, which is something else. Godly grief leads to repentance and salvation without regret. When we experience godly grief or contrition, we repent. We experience salvation and forgiveness. And we feel relief. We feel at peace. We feel forgiven. When we experience worldly grief, it leads to death. So clearly, it's not enough just to feel sorry, just to feel grief, just to feel remorse. It depends on why you feel sorry. You have to feel sorry for the right reasons. And if any of this is not ringing true to you, if you're going, nope, nobody ever told me that. This is really important. And this is just what Christians have believed down through the ages. It's just, in recent years in our culture, a lot of things have become lost. We're going to put on screen two different columns there. Godly grief is spiritual. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Worldly grief is natural. It doesn't require supernatural power. We experience it quite easily. Easily, Godly grief focuses on God and how we've treated Him. Worldly grief is self-focused. And it's concerned with bad consequences. Now, one, one day when I was a two-year-old, my mother was working around the house and all of a sudden she went, there was silence. 
She quickly looked in the house to see where I was. She went out to the sidewalk, didn't find me. So she started running to the boulevard at the end of our residential street with a four-lane street, busy street. And as she arrived, there's a car stopped in the first lane, and a man has gotten out, and he's grabbed me, and he holds me out to my mom and says, with a very judgmental tone and look, is this your child? We don't know how close I came. But I want you to imagine, you know, we all train our kids. Look both ways, hold hands. You know, we don't let them escape when they're two. Um, but just imagine a kid that, you know, disobeys. Maybe they're five, maybe they're four. They, 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 they're not going to look both ways. And they run out in the street and break, screech, and, and they barely get hit, but it's enough to break their arm. Okay? Now, it's only natural they're going to be sorry they broke their arm, isn't it? They might even be sorry that, oh, now I got caught. Mom's going to know I was crossing the street when I wasn't supposed to. They're going to be sorry for the things they're going to miss out on. The child's focus is on the consequences that he or she is experiencing. Let me give you another illustration. Many of you know that I love to barbecue. My children uh, are wonderful, and they gave me an electric smoker for smoking meat and cheese and things, and also another barbecue where I can kind of grill things too. And and I love doing that. Everything is better um, when you put it in the meat smoker. Um, last last worship service, I said everything better is better when you smoke it, and some people took that wrong. Um, I grew up in the '60s in my dorm room, right next to my right next door. There were two guys growing marijuana, and they smoked it every day. So I'm very familiar with the smell. Um, but I want you to imagine that I love barbecue, and you're throwing a big party. And it's a barbecue, and all kinds of people are there. And you've invited me, and I show up, and you've just been, you greet me uh, joyfully, and you've just been waiting for me to get there, and you prepared this perfect ribeye for me. Ribeye, the best steak there is. And you hold it out to me, and say, I'm so glad you're here. here this, I prepared this just for you. And instead of taking the plate, I knock it out of your hand. It falls in the dirt. I look at you disdainfully. I mock you. <laughs> And I turn my back on you and go over and sit down with some of your friends and I start bad-mouthing you. You're stunned. But, you know, you got a lot of guests. You start taking care of your guests at your marvelous party. But pretty soon I'm sitting there and I'm... Actually, that, that meat smells kind of good and I, and I am feeling kind of hungry. So I go back over to you and say, I am so sorry that I'm missing out on the food. Please forgive me for missing out on the food and fix me another plate like the last one. Now, how would you feel? Is the issue that I'm missing out? Is that what needs forgiveness? No. The issue is how I've treated you, how I've insulted you. I've despised the good gift you you offered me. And I've even dishonored you by bad-mouthing you. I should be sorry for the way I have treated you, not for how my sin has impacted me. Do you get it? Broken and contrite heart. Godly grief focuses on God. Worldly grief focuses on ourselves. Now, if you've been following Jesus for some time, one of the most common ways that followers of Jesus fall into worldly grief is to be feeling badly because they can't be proud of themselves. And this often happens with your besetting sin. And what you'll notice 
is that if you think about it, not feeling bad because you can't be proud of yourself is just another consequence that impacts you. We are really resistant to admitting what God has said. That we are far worse than we realize. And yet, far more loved by Him. See, there's actually no room for pride. If you believe what God has revealed in the Bible, there's no room for pride. And yet, we build these big rooms in our hearts for our pride, don't we? And compare ourselves to others and figure out ways we can be proud of ourselves. And when followers of Jesus commit their besetting sin for the hundredth time, and I certainly have and pretty sure you have too. Our sorrow is often because we, we, we can't be proud of ourselves. We failed. We feel like a failure. And that's what we focus on. Oh, no, I failed again. I thought I was so much better by now. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I can't be proud of myself. I feel awful. See, that's a completely natural feeling. Our pride is very adept at making us feel ashamed and sad because we failed. It happens to me all the time. But when it does, that means my focus is on me. And that's not the problem. I'm sad because of the consequence for me. To experience godly grief, I have to ask the Holy Spirit to work supernaturally in my heart. That I would focus on God and come to understand how badly I have treated Him. Because He made me. He loves me. He suffered immensely just to pay for my sins. He knows what's best for me and He wants to spare me from damaging my soul more and more. And when I sin, I reject Him as my King. I told Him I gave Him my life as King, but then I take the kingship back. And I act as though I know better than He does. And insults Him. It grieves Him. It makes Him sad. It, it hurts His feelings. It may even make Him angry. And after all that is, He has done for me, I dishonor Him. I don't love Him back as I should. I turn my back on Him instead of trusting Him. And when all He really wants is not to make me proud of myself. What He really wants is just to have a relationship with me. To forgive me. Shower His love and His peace upon me. Worldly grief is motivated by pride or selfishness and occurs quite naturally. Godly grief requires the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, You'll have to wait. You're not in charge. There's no shortcut. We focus on God and how we've treated Him. We ask for help. Often it's going to have to do with whatever your besetting sin is. But once your heart is broken and contrite, once you are deeply sorry for how you have treated your Heavenly Father who has been so good to you, then ask Him to forgive you because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Not because, oh, I'll be better the next time. Not because, oh, well, I'll give a bunch of money or I'll go to church regularly. I'll read my Bible every day. Only because of Jesus and what He did for you on the cross. And when you do that, God promises to forgive you. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He promises that godly grief leads to repentance and salvation without regret. You will have peace. You will feel forgiven. You will have your relationship with God restored. And if you are repenting and asking forgiveness and you are not experiencing that, 
then you need to keep asking the Holy Spirit to put godly grief in your heart until you do experience that. Because that's God's promise of forgiveness. This is a hard subject today and one that many people have never even heard about, which boggles my mind. But it's so that you can experience forgiveness. I remember the first time I experienced God's forgiveness. I just turned my life over to Jesus after becoming very convinced about my lust and my dishonesty and my pride. And I just was broken. And He just flooded me with this sense of love and forgiveness and peace. Judas was full of grief after betraying Jesus and seeing what happened, but it was focused on himself. And he went out and hung himself. Peter was filled with sorrow after he saw what, that he denied Jesus three times when Jesus really needed him, after he promised he'd die for him. But he experienced godly grief, repented, and was restored to fellowship with Jesus. And then God used Peter, the one who had denied him three times, to set up the, new, the early church and do things that today over a billion people claim to be followers of Jesus. And we all owe Peter a great debt. If you have never experienced godly grief and then repented and turned your life over to Jesus and received the wonderful forgiveness and sense of peace that God offers, you can do that today. If you turned your life over to Jesus sometime in the past, but it's been a while since you experienced godly grief and had that relief and forgiveness and peace, you can do that today. Jesus comes from the lineage of David. He is the descendant who is the eternal king. David really let his people down. Jesus never lets us down. David, where David lusted after a woman and got her pregnant and murdered her husband and caused a civil war where thousands died, Jesus dies so that perhaps billions will be given eternal life. David probably sinned much worse than you have or will. And the consequences were probably much worse than your sins will be. But he still had a heart that deeply loved God. And he experienced godly grief and repented and was forgiven. God loves you like he loves David. No sin is too awful that God wants to cover it in the blood of Jesus and forgive you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Receive forgiveness. You can do that today. Would, would the band and Pastor Luke come to minister to us? I believe now we have a holy opportunity in front of us. Oftentimes we come here and we hear the word spoken. And once we exit those doors, we are human and we immediately forget what we've heard. We haven't allowed it the time to penetrate our heart. And so right now, we're going to give you this holy opportunity to let these words sink deep. And to, for some of us, maybe to experience godly grief. There might be people here that not only need to experience that, but they need to experience the love of the Savior for the first time. So I'll open us up in prayer and give us a few moments of silence to peel back the layers of our heart 
and see the truth rest. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Holy Spirit, would you come right now to expose to us how we have wronged you, how we have wronged your son. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew right spirits within each and every one of us. Father, help us to bravely and courageously dig deep down to expose those besetting sins. Not so we can be totally ashamed and broken down to the point where we feel like we're worthless. But expose those sins so we recognize our need for you as our Savior. We need your power, Father. We need your Spirit to convict us, to help us to repent. And to ultimately make us look more like your Son, Jesus Christ. So we ask for you to begin the hard work, or to continue the hard work, of restoring our broken hearts and restoring our relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. In your powerful name that we pray. Amen.